Welcome to the Social Policy Connections audio podcast. The following podcast features a lecture delivered by Gabriella Byrne, founder of the Free Yourself Program, a resource for problem gamblers. The talk was presented to Social Policy Connections on May the 1st, 2012 at the Study Centre of Yarra Theological Union. Mrs Byrne has used her study of psychology, nutrition and meditation to create the Free Yourself program, a program which has now successfully counselled hundreds of problem gamblers. If you would like to attend one of our events, please refer to our website www.socialpolicyconnections.org.au. Please feel free to subscribe to our podcast via iTunes or via our RSS feed. And now, Gabriella Byrne with her lecture titled The Pokies, 10 Years On, Addiction, Personal and Governmental. Good evening, everybody. This is the official welcome. Thank you, Anne, for this really wonderful introduction. Now, um, before I get into the policy issues and um, things that you might want to know about um, a very unsafe product that um, even today in the budget, I mean, this is, uh, I, um, I didn't in- include that in my presentation, but I got an email today is that um, one interesting thing noted from the tax estimate is that the projected 8.5 increase in Pokies revenue, this is our budget here in Victoria, um, from one. Uh, Point oh three four billion to one point two two one point one two two billion. It's an incredibly significant increase, given that there are no more machines and no more players. The total tax revenue, including lotteries, has increased to one point eight billion, and we're really looking at next year at a um, tax revenue of fifteen point seven eight three billion eleven point eight percent of the total state revenue. So we actually looking at trying to get more money out of gambling than we did this year with all these responsible gaming measures that our government's trying to say to us um, will help problem gamblers. Now, before I um, talk about all this, I'll probably fill you in a little bit of my personal story. Now, I normally start my presentation by asking a question, one that you don't expect in a church building, especially probably not a Catholic church building, but how many of you have ever had a hot, passionate love affair? Don't raise your hands. <laughs> um, I'm talking about the kind of love affair <laughs> where your mum or your best friend looks at you and says, you lost all your senses. Now, I, 14 years ago, had a lot, hot, passionate love affair with the pokies, so that's why the 10 years on from now is actually quite conservative. I got hooked on the pokies in 1992 when they first got introduced into Victoria. It's almost 20 years now. And um, I lost a lot of money. Uh, the, the amount that is quoted in the media is $40,000. I lost this though on first generation machines, right? Like we had only five lines. The spin rate was a lot slower than it is now. Right now, I don't know if you're aware of this, you can uh, lose $5 every 2.4 seconds. 
um, that you push a button. It doesn't matter if we're talking one cent machines. And I'll tell you, um, I just saw a lady last year, a single mum of three children who lost $7,000 in 45 minutes on a one cent machine. So um, I lost about $40,000, which is um, all that we had saved up for a deposit for a house. And then I started to juggle bills. And it was then that my husband, who trusted me completely, found a reminder bill of a school fee um, that he thought we had paid. And he looked through the bank statements and he said, Gabby, where does all this money go? And I had to confess that I spent too much money and time in the gaming venue. And the first thing my husband said was, Gabby, thank God it's only that. I thought you were having an affair. Because it wasn't just the money that changed. You know, when I came home and um, and I um, lost my last dollar and I told lies about where I was and why I was um, not home at the time that everybody expected me and my husband wanted to put his arms around me, I pushed him away. I couldn't stand him to be close to me because of what I was doing. The worst impact it had on... Uh, the relationship that I had with the poker machine, the worst impact though was uh, my um, relationship to my children suffered. They were only very little, you know, my daughter was six and a half at the time and my son was three and a half. And uh, I remember um, that my husband and I made the decision to tell my daughter, the older one, that um, mommy had a problem with the pokies because she, she was witnessing all these fights and she was becoming quite um, uh, aggressive and, 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 and unsettled. And one night I came home and I had taken money out of a money box and my daughter had found a little note that said, Mommy, taking your money. And I'll never forget tears running down my face when my little girl said to me, Mommy, can't daddy buy your poker machine so you earn the money, just stay at home, you know. Um, that hurts, but you know, it wasn't enough to actually um, admit the fact that I had much more than a fling with the poker machines. It, it happened a long time later when um, there was an incident with my mother-in-law, which I can't go into because we don't have a lot of time. Um, when I admitted that I had an issue with the poker machines and I needed help, I looked through all the conventional therapy methods that were out there. And you know, um, looking back now, I think everything um, that you do and study and try to help yourself with um, is important. Um, it made sense to me why I chose maybe gambling and not um, drugs. But nobody, nobody could give me anything to do when I left the council's office and I went uh, past four venues on my way back to work. With sheer willpower, I managed the first one, right? If I didn't have much money and time, maybe the second, if I had some money or some time, the third or fourth venue got me. And we got desperate. I, I never forget my husband. He's a big man, you know, six foot three, ex-Olympian basketball player, Australian. Um, saying to me, Gabby, I've got to throw you out soon. I do love you, but what you're doing to me and the children is something I won't tolerate much longer. So fortunately, I found a little ad in the paper that said, would you like to help change yourself and others' unwanted behaviors? And I thought, wow, that sounded really good. And um, I phoned, and it was a master's 
in applied psychology called neurolinguistic programming. Now, I have a degree, and I thought, you know, at least I learned something. I told the guy what my problem was, and he said, yeah, we have some really hands-on strategies that would probably help you. It cost you 2,400 something dollars. Now, uh, at that stage, we were fi refinancing our house for the third time because of my gambling. We had to take my daughter out of private school education because of my gambling. There was no way my husband could have even found the money to pay for this. I told the guy I'd like to go, and um, fortunately he said, well, come and pay us when you can. And so I went, and for the first time I found some really hands-on stuff to do when the urge to gamble hit me. And um, I don't have time to go into all the strategies. I can just give you one quick example, if you like. I know nobody here has a full-blown addiction, and I know nobody here has a bad habit, right? But I know you all know people that love chocolate. True? Do we know people that love chocolate? I don't look at anybody here. But do we know people that love chocolate and shouldn't have chocolate? No. Well, sir, you are the exception. <laughs> but I know these people would agree with me that before they indulge in the behavior, they have this little internal war happening, right? It starts with one tempting thought, and that thought says, let's just have, thank you, one piece of chocolate. Now, the real strong person that made a commitment didn't want to have any more chocolate, says, no, I, I need to lose weight, not having chocolate, and it goes away. When it comes back, it um, says, well, what's wrong with one piece? You say, well, I already lost, you know, 750 grams, and the doctor said my blood sugar level is getting better, and I'm not going to have chocolate. Goes away. When it comes back the third time, it says, you worked so hard in the garden, and your husband or your wife, they're really a pain at the moment, and um, at our age, who cares what we look like, right? And the last convincing argument is, you deserve this, right? And then you have one piece of whole block internal war lost, true? Doesn't matter if you're talking gambling, chocolate, alcohol, drugs, whatever it is, there is a small time frame where we feel like two people in one body. And if you look at the Bible, I think Paul very often refers to the flesh and the spirit, where, you know, you're fighting constantly inside of yourself and until the, the one that shouldn't win, wins. And um, what I learned to do was the minute I became aware of anything that had to do with um, gambling, any thought, any thought that had to do with gambling, I gave this thought an image. I had a fuzzy idea about God and the devil. For me, that image became a little demon, you know? It wasn't big, but if you've seen Lord of the Rings, little creatures hovering about ground, sort of spikes on the back, sort of saliva running down their faces, you know? They, that, that was my gambling demon. And so I would sit him on the passenger seat when I'm driving the car from work, because vulnerable time, you know? Nobody could control me then. And this thing would say, let's just stop here at the pub and play $10. This time you can control it, whatever it was. I'd look at this ugly thing and I would say, you would like to stop here and $10, play $10. I don't. So you just get lost. 
I said worse things, but I don't swear in public, really. <laughs> Not most of the time. Um, and it gave me something to do. You know, it doesn't matter. Um, people look at you strange at the red traffic light if you go like this, you know. I had people choosing images of spiders, snakes. I had one lady whose husband ran away with a secretary and she put the secretary on the passenger seat. <laughs> if you want to do it, not a Christian approach, I would have put the husband there, but you know. <laughs> so it doesn't matter, it gives you something hands-on to do to actually fight the urge. And there's five strategies that really helped me and um, if you want to have a look at it, if you know anybody in your network that could benefit from it. This is all in this book, um, as Anne said. We sold over 10,000 copies, and um, it's quite well written, uh, I think, because it's in fifth edition. So all my um, German um, mistakes are sort of out of there. And my husband actually, in the last one, wrote a chapter in there. This is the first time. And he called it Mike Clayton's Gambling Addiction. And I said to him, Peter, what on earth does Clayton do? And he said, every Australian would know. It's a drink you have when you don't drink. And I said, well, I wouldn't know, really. <laughs> I only know the real one. Um, also, we did a, a, a DVD which has my children and my husband sharing their experience about the journey um, through this gambling addiction. Now, I, um, I took a bit longer for, for my... Um, actually experience of, of my um, journey but when I finished when I when I basically looked at dealing with the urge but also with my lifestyle you know I don't know how many people understand that if you're addicted to behavior and tell me what other behavioral addictions are there that's, an, that's actually a substance addiction. So we got a difference between substance and behavior. So you got like gambling against smoking, for example. Then you got, what else? Exercise, is that a... Exercise, exercise could be an addiction, yeah, yeah which it, when it negatively impacts on your life. But you have things like shopping, um, working. There are people that actually are workaholics. Um, sex. That's a behavior. So, you know, people always think about addictions when you push a needle in your arm um, to experience a high. People that walk through the door of a gaming venue produce a lot of chemicals. The minute you walk in, adrenaline is pumping. I don't know how, how you... Adrenaline is a powerful drug. You know, when you sit there and just push a button instead of um, being outside in a car where you have to actually get out of the way quickly because a little child on a, on a bike comes in front of you, that's when you need adrenaline, you know, because you have to react a lot faster. But people in a gaming venue have a lot of chemical residue. So I believe that in a lot of ways with the chemicals, addictions, um, once they're withdrawn from the body, you have a better chance. But, you know, when your body produces their own chemicals, it, it's actually quite hard to understand that it's as powerful as any substance addiction is. So I went through um, lifestyle changes to reduce the um, the chemical production in my own in my brain, and then the third and probably final, I guess, piece in my recovery was when I looked at 
my life jigsaw puzzle. You know, I think we made like jigsaws. I don't know if you ever looked at the um, analogy like this, where there's a piece of you that's the woman, the wife, there's a piece that's the mother, there's a piece that's um, the work colleague, the friend, the sports person in my case, you know, there's lots of little pieces and if they're all on this jigsaw at the right place, then it's complete and you feel whole. But for most of our lives, how many of you gone through times where, you know, jigsaw pieces are missing or unresolved grief or loneliness or whatever. In my case, it was a very strong spiritual void. I wondered why I was there. I had no purpose in life. And I guess when gambling came along, it's a little bit like looking for the blue piece in the blue sky. I don't know if you've ever done this, if you have a jigsaw. I think Jenny is doing jigsaws right now. She probably knows what I'm talking about. You know, a thousand piece ones. And, you know, you look through every piece you think that is on this board and finally you find one that has a bit of blue in it. And you look at it and you say, I'm sure it's not the right piece, but hey, the manufacturer made a mistake because this is the only one and you just sort of squash it into there. So what happens if we do this, all the other pieces start to wobble and you become quite, um, um, you know, others popping out, so you have to take it out. So when I handed my life over to God and, and, and acknowledged um, that he was the missing piece in my life, Jigsaw, I believe that that's the moment my recovery became complete. I put all this stuff together in a program, as I said, I called it the Free Yourself Program, and it was launched by the Reverend Tim Costello. See how long I talk, I can't even have the thing back up here. It was launched by the Reverend Tim Costello in 1997. I taught this program to many, many people, and uh, a lot of people, got helped with it. But when they relapsed or lapsed, whatever you're gonna call it, one of the reoccurring arguments was that Gabi, we have nowhere else to go. This is when I started to look at the actual venue, the gaming venue of more important than other people believe it is. Um, I call the venue that people are looking for when they go into gaming venues very often a third place. I don't know if you heard that terminology, but um, what's your first place in your life? If you're talking about a place, a physical place, what's your first place? Yeah. Home. Second? Work for many people. Or, you know, it could be volunteer work, but it work outside. But then the third place is normally a home away from home, where you can just go, as Oldenburg, who, who uh, he's a sociologist from the US, he branded it at the third place, says it's a place where you can go for the sheer pleasure of good company and lively conversation, without, in our case, seeing women are here to do another arts and crafts class, right? It's just somewhere where you can go and forget about the world and the problems and just enjoy other people's company. So I believe that the gaming industry knows about that human need and in Australia we don't have many third places, specifically after hours. So people go there and, um, and try to connect 
And so when I realized that that was something that was missing in Australia, I thought, well, I start one third place up and then see how it goes. And if it works well, I sort of duplicate it. So I founded a non-for-profit called Chrysalis Inside Incorporated. And for four years, we ran a 110-seater restaurant in the Shire of the Yarrangers called the Chapel. And it was a social enterprise um, where, you know, we had to make the money to pay the rent, but I ran it with 90 volunteers and half of them were problem gamblers. They came to me for help for their gambling addiction and the other half were um, people that just volunteered because they believed in the course and they believed in wanting to give back something to the community. But a lot of people that came to this restaurant had no idea about the purpose of it because it was become well known for live entertainment. We had residential bands that actually got everybody up and dancing, didn't matter if you uh, came along. Or we had a regulars table, which is from the German model called Stammtisch, where every pub has a table where regulars congregate and you can talk to total strangers about how stupid your husband is, if you wanted to, <laughs> sorry. or your wife, sorry, I kept it. So, um, so we, we basically um, created a community place, but with a real high quality um, way of food and, and drinks and entertainment. And after four years, the owner needed to sell the premises and he didn't want the freehold linked with it so we were on the streets and then I tried for many many years to find a way of using what we learned there, the fact that people recovered a lot quicker and put it into a model that would help a lot more people. And finally in uh, 2009 the government at the time, the Labour government, um, gave out they probably had some excess money, which is definitely not there in the budget this year. Um, they gave some money to um, to Gamblers Help Services. And they said, here's $100,000 per Gamblers Help Service. Try something that is innovative. And Gamblers Help Eastern said, yes, we'll look at your model. And we started um, the Remaking Meaning project which is the first one up there. And it, it basically helped problem gamblers that were in counselling after they finished counselling to reconnect them to places and people and fun. And um, if you're interested in knowing more about the model, I'm happy to, to talk to you afterwards. The same, this model was so successful that um, it was recommended to be rolled out Victoria Wright. But then we had a change in government, didn't we? So the Liberal government um, is now setting up a foundation which then will look at projects like ours and hopefully support them. But the, the Shire of Moreland, City of Moreland Council, they got some extra money because they decided that gambling venues were such um, a ripoff that they should pay more taxes than other people and other businesses so they doubled their taxes and with these differential rates that they got they got a, a pool of money that they committed to just use to help people that have issues with gambling and so we were able to use the same model and the same program 
um, and run it in the city of Moreland. And um, one of the things which is really exciting is that people that were participants in the Remaking Meaning project are now um, volunteering to be volunteers in the Moreland project and hopefully you know that will eventually become a sustainable model for um, the whole of Victoria. That's my big dream. At the moment I'm looking for funding to um, to get you know the training program happening but that's beside the point. I'm just gonna swish over here now. <laughs> this is a bit more political I guess. If you're having a look at, um, unfortunately the copy is not very uh, easy to, to see, but if you have a look at the socioeconomic status of the map that is out there, this is Victoria, can you see, yeah, I'm just going to go over there and hold it. Um, you know, Melbourne, up there you've got Hume, it's very hard for me to reach up there, um, maybe I switch it over again, just so I, I can read it from here. On the left you got, you know, Widdham, this sort of pinkish colour, Melton, Hume, up the top there, can you see that? Yeah. We'll see. Um, that big green area is Yarra Rangers up there. All the white ones are basically people that are very well off, right? Or, or uh, classified in areas that are very well off. You got um, looking at the very low ones are the red ones, and this is this one there is dandenong, yeah. So that that's sort of what the map indicates. Now, when I show you in the next slide, you will see where most of the poker machines are. Wow. Electronic gaming density, yeah. So when you're looking at the really, sort of really, really low socioeconomic areas and you see the black, this is where most poker machines are. And um, from the way I interpret this, is it's greater than Nong. And on the other side, it'd be Maribyrnong, you know, Moonee Valley, Darwin. So I wonder, I really do wonder why do we have a product that extracts an enormous amount of money of people that are very vulnerable and can't afford it. Why do we have a product all clustered in in these these areas? And um, I don't know if you've seen that article in the Age on Friday. $500,000 an hour are lost on poker machines in Victoria at any given day, an hour, which amounts to $11.9 million. That's the most that can be lost in one single day. We have so far spent $25 billion in the last 10 years. And I mean, there's more horrendous figures out there. I mean, and when I told you about the young woman that lost 7,000 in um, 45 minutes on a one-cent machine, you know um, that these are not made-up figures. These are real figures paid for by real people. We spend more on gambling than we, when we stand on rates. 
money in every council. Yeah. Um, now, as a conclusion <laughs> for this area, for this part of my talk, um, you've heard about, um, I guess, a couple of measures that Andrew Wilkie was supposed to get from Julia Gillard because he agreed to be on her side of the phone and then because she um, thought of a way of getting out of it and got slipper into that, then um, it became a very slippery flight. But one of them that is now um, actually pushed by Tim Costello and many others is the $1 bet limit. People ask me often what would that do? Like, most of you probably are not really familiar with the poker machine setup, but I told you, you can lose $5 maximum at the moment. It used to be $10 in Victoria, then they reduced it to $5. And so now the anti-poker lobby is asking for a $1 bet limit, which would mean that every time you push a button, it doesn't matter if you pay a one cent or one dollar, um, a 50 cent, whatever kind of currency machine, how many lines you play, it doesn't matter, you can only lose one dollar. It wouldn't help probably the addiction to such degree, but it would help reduce the harm it causes to the families, because a maximum that you could lose then in any given hour is $120. This is still a lot of money for many people but it is a lot less than $1,200 or $7,000, depending on what it is. Now, the industry already now starts to get a bit scared, you know, because they have a lot of money to spend. And they talked about that it will cost them $3 billion to change this from $5 to $1, which doesn't make sense. It didn't cost them $3 billion to change it from $10 to $5. You know, but what happens is, see, most problem gamblers, it doesn't matter if you're talking about high rollers or whatever, to start off with, they won't actually spend more than $1.70 a push. So if they can only spend a dollar, that actually reduces the, the amount that they can take, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? Yeah. But the, the, the actual change for the machine is just a software change. It's nothing different to changing from 10 to 5 to 5 to, to 1. But the industry makes it, um, you know, believe that the public that it'll cost them a fortune, which then they can't actually spend on buying band-aids for the local football club, because that's all they do with their billions of dollars that they get. I mean, there, there are reports out there now that just been published that says that every single club, except the small bowling clubs maybe, spent maybe 2 to 3% of their profit on giving back to the community. So, you know, I, I doubt that argument very much. Now, that's the $1 bet limit. The other, the other one that has been in the media and that Andrew Wilkie pushed for is mandatory pre-commitment. And most people don't understand what that means. For, for a lot of them, it means nanny state, right? You tell us how much we can afford to lose 
and um, it means that you tell us that we can't actually play as much as we like to. But that's not what it means. It means like you get a card when you want to play a high density, high, intens high intensity machine. That's the one where you can lose a lot of money on. And on that card, you have to tell how much money you want to lose in any given day or week or whatever. But what mandatory means is that once you lost that money, you're not able to go anywhere else and play. Mandatory means it's linked. All the gaming venues then will not accept your card anymore because you lost what you said you can afford to lose. And what the industry says is, well, problem gamblers then set their limit to a million dollars. Stupid. You know, because when you get the card, you are in a sane state of mind. So you would put in a rational, um, I, I believe, a, 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 an amount that you can think you can afford to lose before your family suffers and can't afford to buy school clothes or send kids on excursion. Yeah? And then once that money is lost, you can't play anymore. That's what mandatory pick commitment means. And I guess um, Andrew Wilkie had a, lot, had a hard time selling this because the clubs Victoria and clubs Australia put in 40 million dollars to fight it with all their un-Australian campaign and ads and all right. So I will um, finish this here and I just want to close off with a couple of thoughts I guess for you. Um, I don't know what organizations you belong to, I don't know why you're here, why you're interested in the topic or if you just have to attend because you're on the board and you have to listen. <laughs> no. No, okay, well that's good. Um, I think as citizens of Australia, I think we do have a responsibility to hold our government to account for what they've done, in particular in poker machine gambling. Um, I believe this is a product. I'm not anti-gambling, by the way. I actually have been to casinos and played blackjack and um, I have bought attached lottery ticket if it's 50 million, like tonight. <laughs> I actually didn't buy one tonight, I forgot. <laughs> but um, I'm not anti-gambling. But what I'm, from personal experience, of course, I know the harm that uh, this product causes. And I know that, for example, in Victoria alone, 80 people committed suicide in a year last year, directly related to poker machine gambling. And these are just the figures that um, we know about. You know, many people drive their car in front of a pole and don't leave a note saying why, and the families are too embarrassed to disclose this. I think, I don't know, have you um, heard about the Panadol um, example many years back where somebody in Queensland uh, got really sick because they they took a Panadol tablet and it obviously was tampered with. I mean, they didn't die. But the consequences of that was that that product was taken off the shelf everywhere. And they put a safety wrap around it so that it's not possible 
to tamper with the product because it made somebody sick. I think we're killing people, families breaking up, crime rates are, are related to a lot of what happened with the pokies and the government just sits back and says, well, you know, um, we do all these good things, education, we put flyers out there, we put little signs on the, on the machines. And I think as individuals here in this room that obviously have some kind of interest in this, I think it's all our responsibilities to stand up and say enough is enough. I think this product should be taken off the shelf and made safe before we bring it back. So if we can actually um, bring change in regards to policy and regulation in regards to this product, I think that will be the first step. And that's why I support Andrew Wilke, that's why I've copied you the Stop the Loss sheet, which has a lot of interesting um, statistics on it. And if you can, please join the campaign and um, make sure that not many more people fall into this trap. So thank you very much, and I, I'm sure I spoke a lot longer than half an hour, but um, I'm sure we still have time for some questions. Do we end? Yeah, we do. We do. Okay, thank you. Thanks, thank, thank you. you. Thank you.